better option. We've been journeying through the book of James, and here in James chapter 4, we're seeing James directly battle or directly confront the warring and strife that goes on among brethren, Christian brethren. That not ought to be. Friends, there ought not to be warring and attacking and strife. We ought to make sure that we are treating one another with gentleness and love. We ought to make sure that as Christians, we're, we are acting Christ-like. And not coming with our own thoughts, our own preconceived things, misconstruing things out of context and attacking one another out of it. That's not right. That's not Christian. We need to make sure that we are truly following in unity with one another. And the Bible teaches us in James chapter 4 how we can correct those situations. If we find ourselves in a relationship that is strained, maybe there is some tension, some um, uh, strife there, there's a warring, the relationship isn't unified like God would desire, God shows us a better way. And I pray that you allow the Holy Spirit of God to soothe your heart tonight. Look at what the Bible says in James chapter 4, verse number 6. But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Father, I need your wisdom tonight. I need your help. I pray that you would help us this evening. Once again, God, I pray that you would heal some relationships this evening. I pray that you would help your people to be a unified body that is reaching forward with the gospel of Christ. There's great power in that, as we'll see in a moment. Help us, please. Teach us tonight. Lord, I humbly ask you this evening to use me, to help your people tonight. God, if there's one that's not saved, I pray they, they will see a taste of heaven in these relationships. And they will know you. They will establish a relationship with you by putting their faith and trust in Christ. So they too may enjoy the blessing of unifying around the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Society is looking for a better way, is it not? I remember years ago, when I was little, the televisions at that day did not have any remotes. Think about it for just a moment. You had to get off of your sofa, your settee. You had to walk across the room and you had to turn a dial. You had to push some buttons. You had to physically change the channel. My boys are like, really? There was a time. Yes, absolutely. Now the television that we have, it doesn't even have a button on it. If you don't have a remote... You can't operate it. Why? Because we found a better way. My son's arguing with me. That's okay. I'll discipline him severely after church. No, uh, just teasing. But uh, if you don't have a remote, you can't operate. It's just amazing how things have progressed to where now you can just recline in your settee. You can recline in your sofa and you can just enjoy uh, whatever it is that you are viewing. Maybe you're doing that this evening. Maybe you actually had to click uh, the mouse. I'm sorry, you had to click the mouse. Or maybe you had to tap your screen. You know, we're getting so lazy anymore that we just use our voice, isn't it not? And we think, okay, well, a remote's, you got to find it. Uh, how much time have you spent looking for a remote? 
You know, it's down in between the cushions, and you can't operate anything on the TV, and so you're desperately looking for that remote so you can control it and working on it. And maybe you might spend five, ten minutes digging through the, uh, digging through the sofa, uh, digging around the sofa, uh, checking other rooms, checking uh, tables and things like that, trying to figure out where in the world uh, that remote goes go so you can look for it. Now you can almost use your voice. Uh, you can tell your smart devices now to turn it to this or activate this, and away it goes. It's incredible how we continue to look for better ways, new things. We continually want to look for things that are more efficient and, more, and, and save time and same effort, and we can work smarter as we would use the terminology often. You know, this has been something that's been inbred in man since, the, since Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The disciples, as they spoke with Christ, were looking for a better way. They thought Jesus Christ was going to be king. He was setting up his kingdom on earth in his earthly ministry. They thought he was going to provide them freedom from Roman rule and that he was going to establish uh, the authority of Israel once again. That's what they thought. In fact, if you look at James thir- or John 13 and John 14 and continue, you'll see a dialogue there uh, between Jesus and the disciples as Jesus teaches them, prepares them for what is about to happen. The disciples were thinking that the better way was going to be Jesus establishing his kingdom, and we look forward to that. However, when he establishes his kingdom, we'll be with him in glorified bodies, enjoying, of course, uh, the wonderful pleasure of serving Christ perfectly with him. What a tremendous thing that's going to be. Don't have to worry about this sin nature inside anymore. Don't have to worry about the battle of flesh, and God will give me one that's free from that battle, and what a blessing that's going to be. I thank God for that. But the Bible teaches us in John 14 that Jesus was showing his disciples a better way. He was preparing them for the better way, although their better way didn't seem like it was on the same path. They thought Jesus was going to free them from human rule, but Jesus was going to provide a better way. In fact, in verse number six, he says, I am the way. He said, you're looking for one way, but I'm going to give you a better way. I'm going to give you something that is even greater than what you're envisioning. I'm going to give you something that's better than what you're anticipating. I am the better way. Thank God that he is the better way. As James addresses in our text tonight, the contention, the warring and strife between Christian brethren. And oh, how that needlessly happens. And I say needlessly because it never has to happen. But yet we're not perfect. Sometimes we speak out of turn. Sometimes we take our own agenda and our own will. Sometimes we pull something out of context and make an issue out of it. Sometimes we do things in which our carnal nature enjoys causing problems. It's going to happen. If you're saved, you are going to have some contentions, some wars, some strifes with other brethren. It's going to take place. It is inevitable. Now, what do you do about it? When that comes, what's the procedure? What do I do to resolve this problem, these issues? James teaches us that there is a better way. We looked at this verse, I want to just point it out. I'm not going to go through all of it like we did last week. If you were not able to uh, be a part of the service last week, I pray that you will go and you will listen uh, to the sermon last week and get the context. I'm not going to go through all of it tonight, but I want us to be reminded and just caught up and have a basic context here for how we are going to proceed. The Bible says in verse number 6 of James chapter 4, but he giveth more grace... In essence, James is saying there's a better way. Uh, There's an option to see God's help and God's favor. His grace is more sufficient than what you're anticipating. God is providing a better way. You don't have to be at odds with one another. There's a better way forward. 
Notice he says, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. He says, those who continue to choose the battle, God is going to resist that because that is a self-explanation or a self-portrayal uh, 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 of pride. And God says, I'm going to resist that, but I give grace unto the humble. Those that will do what? Look at verse number seven with me as we looked at the victory that comes from God. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And we cannot forget that part. So often we skip to the last part. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But you cannot do the last part unless you do the first part. Submit yourselves to God. You cannot resist Satan uh, yourself. He will win all the time if you do not submit yourselves to God. We looked at that last week. Submitting speaks of knowing God, knowing his word, and submitting to his word. It's knowing what God desires, knowing what his word says, and submitting to it and allowing the word of God to battle for you. The, bat the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It can do a work and a battle that I cannot. I don't have the power to defeat the mighty Satan. However, God's word has more power. God has more power. And if I submit myself to him, it gives me the ability to resist the temptation that the devil is bringing. And when I use the word of God and when I yield myself to the word of God, it is a, resisting, uh, it is a resistance of the devil. And he cannot stand before the word of God. He is fearful of the word of God. And that's why he makes such efforts to change God's word. You know, if we as Christians submit ourselves to God, it's amazing at what God can do. If we know what the word of God says, it helps us to navigate. May I give a for instance here tonight? An infamous passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse number 15, about, uh, about Jesus teaching the disciples how to interact or to end some contentions again this is a submitting to god it's knowing god's word and yielding ourselves to it i want us to look at it tonight notice what the bible says moreover if thy brother shall trespass against thee that word trespass there is an interesting word it actually means to miss the mark to miss the mark in other words they've missed something in a relationship there's something that has been wrong towards you or someone has committed an offense to you notice the bible says, if thy brother jesus is speaking familial he's speaking i believe in context here of not only of physical brother and sisters but also spiritually the brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, going right back into James chapter 4. If thy brother wrong you, if thy brother trespass, if thy brother has missed the mark and has hurt you, notice what the Bible says. If thy brother shall trespass against thee, what should we do? Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. What's the first step? The first step is to go and say, look, that hurt me. That troubled me. That hurt. We need to talk this out and get this right. We need to come at terms with one another. Because this is a wound that won't heal. And I don't want bitterness to seep in. Notice the Bible says, If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. You know, when we come to someone and on terms, and we'll see the context here in just a minute on how we are supposed to come and approach this and how we are supposed to come uh, and deal with the strife and the contentions and how we are to uh, handle and what spirit we'll see in just a moment here. But if we come at the right way, God says you've gained that brother. In other words, you've gained an ally. You've gained someone that says, okay, he is willing to come biblically and scripturally. And truly, it encourages and he strengthens the relationships. 
You know, sometimes we want to run. And oh, how horrible it is today that we have such a cancel culture. And it's used that term of media all over where someone says, you've missed the mark, you've trespassed against me. That hurt me and we just write one another off. I'm done with you. We fall out over the smallest things over the, and over the most trivial things. I like brown. You like blue. Uh, bless God, we're not going to meet in the middle. You can go your way, I'll go mine. And we're not going to ever intertwine again. That should not be. That's not scriptural. God tells us that when we have a situation, we ought to come and to talk it out. So often, a situation can be resolved by a few minutes of heartfelt conversation, transparent with one another, and saying, I'm sorry, I didn't realize, you're right, I, I, I took that out of context, I took that uh, in a way I should not have, I'm sorry, I didn't realize your motive behind it, uh, and just simply a confession and a for, an asking of forgiveness, and many, 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 many times it can be solved that simply. God tells us that's the first step. But what happens if he will not hear? Notice how Jesus continues. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Coming and saying, look, I tried to get this situation sorted, but he won't even talk to me. God says, take two or three with you. Take another one or two with you. And as two or three are there and you go and you try to, uh, 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 to mend the relationship, there is witness that people are trying or that you have tried to restore that relationship. Notice that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if you neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. He says, if you need to bring others in the church into this, and so much we could speak of that we're gonna, I'm gonna not going to highlight everything tonight for sake of time, but uh, to bring the church into it and to say, look, I'm trying to establish, reestablish this relationship. There's been a wrong that has been done, uh, but this brother or sister won't listen to me. I don't know what to do. And the church hears, and the church, church helps guide says, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever he shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever he shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus here is transitioning a little bit as far as a relationship that is mended. A relationship that has been established. And a relationship that has been reestablished, it has been strengthened through proper biblical confession and forgiveness god tells us that it increases the strength of what can be done god says when there are two or more witnessing together in agreement god can use that in a powerful way god can use that to move heaven and earth it's incredible at what god can do through two people who are unified around us uh, around one cause Notice what the Bible says. Again, I say unto you that if two shall agree on earth touching anything, that they shall ask it. It shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall thy brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times. Jesus here is spoken of motives. Again, he's speaking, he just, he just re referenced the unification. That should be our heart and our motive as we come and we try to settle disagreements among brethren, among brothers and sisters in Christ, among physical brothers, uh, family, is to bring a spirit of unity you're looking to restore. You're looking to see how you can come to agreement, how you can come to a term of satisfying that or, or covering that wound or healing that wound in your heart. If you let it go, it will fester. It will become bitterness and it will start seeking revenge. 
it will start seeking an attack and trying, as we'll see in just a moment in James chapter 4, on how you can get back. God's not, that's not pleasing to God. God wants us as Christians to look to see how we can unify. We ought not to seek how we can divide, but how we can unify around the gospel. How we can work together to get people the good news of Jesus Christ. What a spirit. It would change so many relationships if we were to remind ourselves of the principle and what God establishes. Notice the Bible says, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Jesus says there ought to be a heart of wanting to bring uni- a unity to relationship, of working together and co-laboring once, uh, once again, but also a spirit that is looking to forgive. Have you ever had a difficult conversation? A conversation maybe of odds at one another. And the goal in which you had for the relationship and for that conversation was to show who could say the last word, who could get that last thing in. Husbands and wives, listen to me quick, carefully tonight. What if we were to take this same principle of looking and being ready to forgive in our relationships? How much would that heal over a marriage instead of divide it? There's too much division in our homes, too much division among God's people because we come attacking one another, looking not to forgive, but we are looking in ways we can further say our say our piece say our few words and dig in even more that does not bring that spirit in which jesus christ intended jesus christ said you are coming looking and ready to forgive you're ready as soon as they say i'm sorry as soon as they begin your heart is already forgiving your heart is already reaching out and forgiving in that moment yes Okay, quickly. Let me know when, when we're on. All right. Apologize about the pause there. But we ought to come looking for a time in which we can forgive and we can reach out and we can restore and, for, and express that heart of forgiveness once again. Oh, how we need to remind ourselves of that. We need to submit to God. Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. We submit to God first and then resisting the devil takes place. But we we need to remember that we need to submit to God before the resistance can happen. We look secondly at a change in course. We said, first of all, in James chapter 4, verse number 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Speaking of coming to God and restoring that relationship with God and making sure that we have a close walk with God, that we've come home, like as we looked at the prodigal child, coming home back to his father once again. But I want us to look at verse number or verse number 8, The last part of that verse tonight as we continue into some new territory. I've taken a little bit of time to uh, get some context and to fortify what God has stated. And now I want us to continue on through verse number 8. Notice what he says. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. James tells us the reason... We don't do the first part of this verse. He tells us the very first, very reason of why we don't come with forgiveness and why we don't come with a heart that is looking to unify. He's telling us the reason and why we don't want to draw nigh to God. 
Why is that? It's because of what J uh, J David, excuse me, wrote in Psalms 24. Look at verse number three. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. The reason why we as Christians will not try to reestablish a relationship is because we know that there is iniquity in our heart. We know that there is an issue in us. We know that there has been some wrong that we have done. Not all of one side is guilty. There is some guilt on your part and you don't want to confess it. You don't want to admit it. You don't want to humble yourself and say, God, I am partly at fault in this. And how often the case is, is that when there is a trespass against us, that that trespass is partly because of our stance, because of our attitude and because of our demeanor. Husband, go try to have a, have a fight with your wife when she is looking and saying, I love you, dear. Oh, I love you, dear. Thank you, I love you, dear. Your words quickly fall on deaf ears. Your words quickly lose their wind and their sails, as it were, and it quickly loses the motive for the argument. Why does an argument excel? Why does an argument begin? Is because there are two sides battling a warring against one another. And because of that contention, it causes the warring and strife in which we are seeing. The reason why we choose not to draw nigh to God is because we don't want to confess the sin in our heart. If you want a relationship that is going to be repaired, you need to get before a holy God, ask God to search your heart, confess it, forsake it, and get it right with them, and get the other issue right as well. Oh, how important it is that we understand that we need to come to God with a clean heart, and we need to understand that our hands are not fully clean either. God, James calls this a double-mindedness. Huh. How often I hear in marriage arguments, it's her fault, it's his fault. It takes two to battle. It takes two to tango, they say. It takes two to war. Not every spirit and every motive that you had in our argument was pure and holy before God. And yet you're saying it's just all her. It's all him. It's all that brother so-and-so. It's all that sister so-and-so. As you point, remember there's four fingers pointing back at you. <laughs> we need to understand that our hearts need to be clean before God. Cleansed of heart let's continue look at verse number nine we need to realize of one's own standing i want you to see the context here is so important so often i see this chapter and i hear sermons preached completely out of context from this verse uh, of, of these verses let's die let's dive into this in verse number nine contextually and scripturally Notice he says, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Here's what's taking place. Christians are warring. Battle words, battle motives, battle of, of opinions. And one thinks they've won. One thinks they've won the argument. I got the last word in. Did you see what I just said? Did you hear how I got that last word in? Did you hear my response? And we say that in a way in which, yeah, look, look, at, look at how wise and how sharp-tongued I am. Look how quick-spirited and quick, and quick in thinking and quick of heart I am. 
Did you catch that zinger that I, uh, that I gave or that little dig that I stated at that moment? Oh, I got him good. Oh, I got her just where I want her. And we begin laughing about it. James is pointing out this exact behavior. He's telling them to be afflicted. This word afflicted is a very traumatic word. This word afflicted here speaks of painfully or miserably removing that which has been made of callousness. James is speaking of a pulling off of a calloused part of heart or skin. Have you ever had a callous? You've worked with your hands, you've worked or run, and you developed maybe a blister and a little bit of a callous. James is using a very uh, a traumatic experience of ripping that callus out of the skin to unveil the rawness and tenderness of the soft flesh underneath. He says, be afflicted. He says, why are you laughing? Well, he says it, just, he says it and later in this verse. He says, why are you laughing and rejoicing over how you think you have gotten the last words in? He says, you ought to be weeping and mourning. He says, your heart ought to be broken. It ought not to be filled with laughter and haughtiness and looking to how you can get those last few words in. He says, your heart should be broken over the situation. In essence, James is knocking people off of the high horse. It is David who thought he got away with this sin with Bathsheba, thought that everything was okay and that everything could just continue on. Only those who were privy to the information knew it. However, it was the prophet Nathan who came into David's throne room and gave him an uh, gave him a parable a story of a widow being taken of her lamb and david in his anger stating who is that man and nathan points and says it's you you're the one you thought you got away with it but god has you in his sights my friends when we come to a point in which we think we have the upper hand in this battle and strife with others we need to be reminded that god knows it all there's two sides and two versions of the story in the battle in which is taking place but god knows the ultimate truth that's most of the time in the middle of those two stories so often it's in that middle of those two stories that we find the truth that points to us and says, Thou art the man. Thou art the woman. We need to remind ourselves that we ought to not be happy over a broken relationship, but rather be mourning and weeping and our heart burdened over the relationship that is suffering. A painful removal of a callousness in the heart. It is a calloused heart. It is a hardened heart that says, look at what I just said to get my dig in. Notice how James continues. James is digging a little bit here, isn't he? I don't know about you, but as I read this, my heart is convicted. I'm not preaching to you tonight. I'm preaching to us. Notice what he says. Let your laughter be turned to mourning. That word laughter is not just simply laughing like, oh, that was funny. But it's loud laughter. It is laughing to the point where your side hurts, as it were. Laughing loudly and bolsterously and happily over how the division in which you've caused the war in which you have sparked the strife in which you have kindled that loud laughter god admonishes jesus said it this way 
In verse number 21 of Luke 6, Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall uh, shall laugh. Verse number 25, Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Solomon wisely wrote in Proverbs chapter 14, Fools make a mock at sin. God's not pleased with the hurt and the pain and the wounds we afflict on. Why is it that we as Christians think we can treat others in such a harsh and ungracious way? They're saved. They'll get over it. They got Jesus. Grace is enough. Does not the Bible tell us the fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, goodness, meekness, Does God not tell us that we are to be gentle and kind with one another? What gives us the authority to go and to act with such high-minded pride and high-minded haughtiness in our heart and life that truly wants to inflict and damage the hearts of others? What gives us the scriptural right to do so? I see nothing in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation that gives us the authority to inflict open wounds on the hearts of others. In fact, it's much the opposite to seek to restore, to seek to help, and to encourage and to exhort one another, and so much the more. What's wrong with being gentle in our conversations? So often I, so often we hear, well, that's just not me. That's not my personality. I'm like a bull in a tiny china shop, and I just go in. My friends, that does not have to be. The fruit of the Spirit brings gentleness if gentleness is against every part of your nature, the Holy Spirit of God can change you. It doesn't have to continue that way. God's Holy Spirit and His power and His might is stronger than those things. Did He not take a murderous Saul who was looking to quench and to stifle the name of Jesus Christ become a missionary that furthered the gospel and the missionary that rallied others around him a missionary that would become a martyr himself for the cause of Christ if Paul uh, if, if God could turn a murderous Saul into the missionary Paul he can change your life as well did he not change Peter's life he was impetuous and truly said things that got him into trouble so often and yet God turned his life and changed him and we have wanted to Peter to look at and to read and to see how God changed and to guide his heart we see in the book of Acts where instead of boldly entering and confidently where he would become humble in a situation and would rather uh, uh, follow the leading of the spirit of God instead over and over and over again, we see God taking a life that was his, uh, uh, that the personality or base nature is one direction and changing them to something else. God can change our spirits. You, we do not have to say, well, I'm not gracious. Well, bless God, you ought to get right with the holy God. Get on your knees before him. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts and allow God to change your life. We need to come to a point in which we understand that we are not bringing laughter, we're bringing hurt and mourning. We ought to mourn and weep. Notice what the Bible continues in verse number, verse number 9. And your joy to heaviness. That word joy there is a word that speaks of that which, is caused, that which causes cheer something to laugh at, something to smile at. James says, that which causes us to cheer, that which which we are laughing and rejoicing about, smiling about and saying, hey, look, did you hear that? I told him, I told her. 
James says we ought to come to a point in which it brings that joy isn't there, but rather heaviness. Heaviness says, I don't want to have to say this. I don't want to have to deal with this. But God's grace is going to be sufficient. I'm not going to come in and I'm not going to look to how I can hurt. But I want to look to see how we can heal. How we can unify together. If you were to take what James has taught in this one verse alone, it would change every marriage argument. It would change every conflict between a son and a daughter. It would change every relationship if we got the right heart. This is a picture of a deep conviction. This is what James is showing us. He's shown our heart shouldn't be glad and, oh, look at what I told them, but rather of deep conviction, a deep heaviness of heart. Understanding that it's a hurtful situation against what God teaches. God is not happy. God is not pleased. His heart is burdened. And our heart is too. Then notice how James ends in verse number 10. He continues, and we'll look at this in context next week uh, by the grace of God or next time. Look at verse number 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. A broken heart leads to a transformation of direction in the course of any situation. A broken heart changes us. Humbling ourselves in brokenness and wall transparency to the Lord allows God to do something. When we follow the word and we submit ourselves to God in this text, the Bible tells us something happens. Notice what it is. And he shall lift you up. When a relationship breaks down, when a relationship is that is strained, God says, if you humble yourself, I'll bring in healing. I'll correct. I'll bring a true joy. Psalms chapter 30, verse number 5 says this, For his anger endureth but a moment. In his favor his life. Weeping may endure for a night. Oh, but the night doesn't stay, does it? Joy cometh in the morning. We humble ourselves and we allow God to help mend and help repair the situations or relationships. God tells us there might be a time in which you weep and you might have a time of great heaviness and a time of, of forgiveness and, of, and, and a few moments of, of, of distress and uncomfort. But God tells us in the morning, at the end of that dark night, God says in the morning comes joy, a joy of a brother that is gained, a joy of a relationship that is reestablished, a joy of unity, a joy of forgiveness that has been offered, a joy of tasting of the forgiveness of God and experiencing the forgiveness of others. What an incredible thing it is to know the joy of God setting and making things right in our relationships. May I remind us that 2 Chronicles 7.14 still says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray 
and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. If my people submit to my words, submit to God, notice what God says he'll do. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. God can bring healing. God can bring forgiveness. God can make those wrongs right if we learn the scriptural principle of James 4. I'm reminded of an illustration or a testimony of a man by the name of John Guilford. He, in his testimony, was similar to John Bunyan before he himself got saved, but only John Guilford was much, much worse. John Guilford had at one time been a part of the Royalist Army or officer in the Great Civil War. And like so many officers and men on that side, he was a man of a very bad life. In the course of the conflict, he fell into the hands of his enemies. And for some transgression of the laws of war, he was condemned to death. But by the devotion and determination of his sister, he managed to outwit his jailer, and escape from prison. After some hairbreadth escapes, Guilford was enabled somehow to set up as a doctor in the town called Bedford, where he continued his old life of debauchery and was notorious far and near for his hatred and ill usage of the Puritan people. But one night after losing all his money at cards, as God would have it, as Bunyan would what, was wont to say, Guilford was led to open a book by the famous Puritan Robert Bolton when something that he read in that book took such a hold of him that he lay in agony of conscience for several weeks afterwards. At last, as his old Kirk Session record still extent has it, God did so plentifully uh, discover to him the forgiveness of his sins for the sake of Christ that all, all his life after he lost not the light of God's countenance, save only about two days before he died. No sooner did John Guilford become a changed man than like Saul of Tarsus, he openly joined himself to those whom he had hitherto persecuted. And ultimately, he became their beloved pastor. The three or four poor women whom Bunyan one day saw sitting at a door in the sun and talking about the things of God were all members of John Guilford's congregation. John Guilford was a man of great wickedness. God saved him. God helped him heal. God restored. God saw for God brought forgiveness and help. John Guilford preached the gospel of Christ. God can change us. He can heal. Doesn't matter how severe the damage is doesn't matter how strained or how much at war you are with another individual. God can heal. But it comes with a humble heart. Paul, when he spoke to the troubled church in Corinth, When they chose to spurn at his first letter and to receive it very poorly, he told them, Godly sorrow worketh repentance. There's something about a sorrowful heart, a humble heart, that God uses in a way that you will not find in pride. I'll close with this. 
Psalms chapter 40. The Bible says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined unto me, and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my goings. And He hath put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. If we do our relationships right, God can use the restoration and the healing of a relationship to do what? To bring others to Jesus. That's the power of what God can do. My friends, a broken relationship is no excuse to not see the power of God. The power of God can be fully displayed in a broken relationship, causing others to look and to see a God who heals, a God who brings forgiveness, the God, the Savior, who makes all wrongs right. What a powerful testimony that what powerful testimony that ought to be in our lives. May I encourage you tonight that if there's a relationship that is troubled, maybe it's the person in whom you're sitting to right now, next to you right now. Maybe it's a son. Maybe it's a daughter. Maybe it's a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe it's a neighbor. I don't know. But I encourage you to see there's a better way. Jesus knows what he's doing. He can fix every wrong. He can give you grace to forgive. But we have to step out by faith and submit with the right heart, a broken spirit, a broken heart, a humbled heart, a heart that is yearning for unity, forgiveness may we see some healing in our relationships it begins with God's word